Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. Welcome to episode 302 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we have an excellent guest to share with you. Renowned actor, playwright, director, teacher, sage, Austin Pendleton. And we talked to Austin about being a director, about ego, and acting, parallel universes. His most recent show, Choir Boy on Broadway right now, Tennessee Williams and Arthur Miller and Mammoth and oh my gosh so much so much good stuff with Austin Pendleton today we also have an EW essay by yours truly titled Pendleton and another wonderful installment of Uncle Cesare's work aka Dr. Michael Pavis our associate producer. This one's titled The Yellow Dress. And we have a poem called Mammoth. All of this, of course, as is always the case, will be imbued, infused, with the energy of several great tunes. So nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 302 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours. Anything for you 
could have worn the yellow dress too. I could have asked the sage Thesbian a more profound question or two. Oh, hell. But, my friends, I must kiss those worries a kind farewell. Bid them adieu. The time is short and the list of life things to do, thankfully, is long. Why not then write another glorious song? While basking bright, so bright, in the brisk winter sunlight, as the early afternoon breeze catches my collar down and inspires me to fold it up back to the analogous song. Does it not keep on keeping on, informed by those poignantly weak, poignantly strong, and oft-times mundane renditions of right and wrong? I had spoken to him, the thespian sage, about Tennessee's plays, Arthur Miller's character, and David Mammoth's brilliant phone calls. How one misplaced word changes everything in your pockets and proscribes a different experience for those taking it all in. Is it a sinner's sin to not get it right when you have the chance to get up and sing, to step up and dance, as the art in us will always be open to a perfect romance? certainly more so than a gratuitously human political glance, though does not each fill the other with verve and meaning enough to surpass indeed such mere task and circumstance. Oh, I couldn't hear nobody pray. Lord, I couldn't hear nobody pray. Oh, way down yonder by myself And I couldn't hear nobody pray On my knees I couldn't hear nobody pray With my burden way down yonder by Savior, I couldn't hear nobody pray Chilly water I couldn't yeah. hear nobody pray Hallelujah I couldn't hear nobody pray Crossing over 
Sometimes I feel, I feel, sometimes I feel like, like a sometimes I feel like a motherless child, sometimes, sometimes I feel, sometimes I feel like, sometimes I feel Sometimes I feel like a mother's Hello, Austin. You know, this is, uh, as you probably have gathered, uh, E.W. Conundrum from Troubadours and Rock on Tours. I got fooled by your message. It was so good. You're such a good actor. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Honestly, I was talking to your message, and I really, wait a minute, this is a message. Uh, so nice to have you on the program again. It's so nice. It's so nice. And... Uh, um, I'm going to get right to it. I know you're busy. You're you're doing some great work on Broadway at the Manhattan, Manhattan Theater Club right now with Choir Boy, and we're going to get into that. But right now, let me give a little background. Not too much. Most people know who you are. Austin mm-hmm. Pendleton. He's one of our premier actors, directors, playwrights, and teachers of the art here in the United States of America. Uh, he's been doing it since, I would say, the 60s, starting off in Chicago coming from Ohio, landing in New York City, the epicenter of theater, uh, and um, worked with so many greats, uh, being a great himself, people such as Meryl Streep and Natalie Portman, Chuck Cooper, um, Philip Seymour Hoffman is a fan, Ethan Hawke, uh, you know, uh, the list goes on and on and on. Laurie mm-hmm. Metcalf, uh, you've been teaching at HB Studio since uh, 1969. I believe one of our guests we had on recently, the great opera aficionado, Conrad Osborne, speaks very oh, highly yeah. of you as yeah. a teacher. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, He's it's, a great friend. Is yeah. he? Is he? I didn't know you guys were friends as well. 
Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was great to talk with. And and um uh some some great I just uh, two days ago uh, from this this conversation that we're recording for the show, I saw a critic's pick for Choir Boy in the New York Times. It's oh good. Getting, yeah, it's getting great reviews. Good. And good. Uh, it's it's great to have you on the show again. It's the second time having you on the show. It's it's an honor, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> And uh, I want to I want to ask you, are you know in in the show Choir Boy, uh, you're you're, mm-hmm. you're playing someone called Mr. Pendleton, right? So is this character modeled after you at all? Well, we aren't the same person. I mean, he has a very different history than me. I think that uh, Terrell McCraney, Terrell and I are. I mean, we don't know each other that well, but. We're both members of the ensemble at the Steppenwolf Theater in Chicago. And I think that um, when, and this play, uh, Choir Boy, is kind of autobiographical. Um, There was the kind of school for, it's effectively a high school, a prep school for young African-American men. And I think Terrell went to a school like that. And, um, um, they had Masters Black, that's played by Chuck Cooper. And I think there must have been a teacher who came there who essentially has the life profile of um, the character I play. And I think that something about that, I'm just putting this together. I've never asked to roll this, but I was offered the part. I mean, I think he wrote it, he wrote it for me. And he thought that this person, that this teacher that he had known uh, um, had a personality that he thought I could play. So he called it Mr. Pendleton. I mean, the man was not called Mr. I don't know what the man was called. And I'm not even, all this is, everything I'm telling you is speculation on my part. I, uh, so I got offered it. I got it, you know, when we first did the play five years ago. Uh, in the small theater at Manhattan Theater Club, uh, I, I received it as an offer, which is quite unusual. I usually have to audition for things. And um, I said, it's called Mr. Pendleton. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, and I deduced from that that it was, um, he had it in mind that I would play it. This is how I'm putting it all together. I've never once asked him any of this. You're going to have to ask him and find out how accurate you are. Yeah, I am, but I sort of feel shy of asking him this. It's such a gift, the role, that I it, I just sort of want to leave it alone, you know. But, I mean, it, that it, it, I mean, the name, the last name, is just way too much of a coincidence. Exactly. And now, I mean, he's a relatively uh, new, newer playwright, would you say, or a younger playwright? Uh, yeah, well, I, I don't know how old he is, but uh, he's certainly in his 30s. Right. So, you know, you have a couple of years on him. How How is it uh, working with younger playwrights, younger artistic visionaries? I mean, you're, you've directed, acted, you've done it all yourself. Is, mm-hmm. how, is it hard to sublimate your own uh, sense of, of leadership or taking the reins when you're working with someone a lot younger than yourself? Oh, no. I mean, you, you, you don't, um, you try to, well, you, uh, 
you look up to the playwright and you look up to the director, no matter who they are. It, it, the age thing, you do not bring in a vibe and you don't even feel it. Of, uh, well, I, I, I've been around longer. I'm more of a veteran. You, know, you, don't, you don't bring that into the room. It's, uh, uh, you, you, a director said to me once when I was in a show, he said, I'll bet you, I'll bet you wish you were directing this. And I said, if I, if I wish that I wouldn't have taken this part, I wouldn't bring that into a rehearsal. That, that sounds very uh, logical to me. It sounds very respectable. It's without ego so much. You're going in and you know your position, you know your part. Literally, you have to. You have to do. You cannot bring to a director. I know more about all this than you do. You simply can't. It's a terrible working atmosphere if you do that. Regardless of your experience, regardless of, uh, I mean, what if hypothetically you genuinely maybe you don't even go there. You generally think a mistake is being made in, in the direction when you're when you have a, a role in. in a I would never allow myself to think that. Or if I did think it, I wouldn't in any way manifest it. I, I respect. Yeah, see, I see. See, I've, 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 you know, I've been directing for a long time, and so obviously, early on when I was directing, I directed people who had been directors and who were much more experienced in the business than I was in one way or another, and they always gave that to me when I was the, when I, even when I was a beginning director. And I thought, well, see, that's that's beautiful. It, it, yes, it is. You know, and it's interesting. I I have had uh, on our program uh, several times uh, uh, Martina Mayok. You know, I'm sure you know Martina. And uh, mm -hmm. we've talked about her role as a playwright and working mm -hmm. with a director and giving up certain uh giving up that that sense or that feeling that you need to grab onto some some control uh when, mm -hmm. when it's going on and and she basically said the same thing i mean you have conversations with the director but you really have to have confidence give confidence to the director to a great extent too otherwise you have to or the or the work doesn't get done when you say the work doesn't get done the the work that needs to be done can't if you're if if an actor is kind of lording it over the director, um, it, it's a very unproductive work relationship. Um, sort of after I'd been directing for around 10 years, I was directing a production in the, in the summer theater in New Hampshire of the cherry orchard. And while I was, while I was there with that, and my wife and I had just had our child and we had the baby up there and everything. I got a call from over in Williamstown, maybe a two hour drive away, where I'd apprenticed and where I'd begun directing and and where I was an equity actor frequently. I got a call from the the man who then was running Williamstown, Nico Sakharopoulos. He said, We're doing the cherry orchard. Would you play Trophima? It's a part of the aging young revolutionary in, in the cherry orchard. And I said, sure. So for the two weeks of rehearsal for that, I would, I would drive from New Hampshire in the morning over and rehearse Nikos's production to, be, to act in Nikos's production of The Cherry Orchard while the one 
I had just directed was playing in New Hampshire. I thought, okay, this is going to, I have to prove to myself that I can do this. Yes. <laughs> and, and that I have to prove that, I mean, I had just finished directing the same play and it was still playing. And, and, and I commuted every day the two hours each way because, because my wife and small child were there. And, and, um, so, and so then when I, when I would drive back to New Hampshire, I would see the show I had directed so I could give notes of the cherry orchard. Then the next morning we'd drive and rehearse in Nikos's production, which was completely different. And, and it's like, I mean, the whole, it's a whole, it was a whole different interpretation of the play and all the roles in the play. Uh, uh, uh when Sky was played by, um, uh, Colleen Dewhurst. And in the production that I I was directing, it was in New Hampshire. It was when this guy was Olympia Dukakis, and those are two very two great actresses, very different from each other. And the whole show was I the way Nikos was having it. He used the same designer I was using, and the sets for his production were the opposite of the set we had. And that and so I thought, okay, I have to come into the rehearsal hall as an actor with Nikos directing this play. And forget that 12 hours before <laughs> or 10 hours before, I just, I've been watching the one that I had directed what I, and I had to, I had to, I had to flush it out of my mind and I had to not ever feel like saying, oh, Nikos, I think maybe this moment, you know, I not say that, not think it to myself. And I thought if I can do this, then I can be, an actor who other people directs, because this is the most extreme example of that I can imagine. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, what <laughs> and, it, a... and, and it, and, and I was able to do it. Well, what an opportunity for you to grow mm -hmm. as an individual. You're like living in a, in, in two parallel universes. You know? Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But I think when, uh, when a person directs, when an actor becomes a director, but continues to act, y you have to, that's the discipline of it. When you're an actor, you're an actor. You're not a co-director of a show that you're in. You just aren't. No, no. Uh, and, 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 and you can't assert yourself as one, even in the smallest way. Would you say from your experience as a director, as an actor, as a teacher, that some of the greatest performers, the greatest in the art of acting, uh, have a good sense of and a good control over their ego? Oh yeah, they have to. And actors who, who an actor who does good work, or, or that, uh, 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 that, an actor who does whether it's good a good actor who does either good or bad work is still um, they have to have control over their ego. I would think so. You know, otherwise, you're walking they, around as an arrogant. They have to leave it at the door. I mean, it's not that they don't have one, but they have to park it outside the building. You know. <clears throat> well, let, let me ask you about Choir Boy. Um, what, mm -hmm. for, for, for those who have not yet uh, sort of gotten into what the show is about, tell us a bit about it. You, you started to a bit before. Yeah. Sort of autobiographical. Choir Boy is about a prep school, effectively, for young African-American men. It's a, it's a high school. It's a private school. For young African American men, and um, we only we don't see any faculty except me. But um, the headmaster's African American, and we assume that the other teachers are. 
that we don't see. And uh, the hero, the young hero of the play is a young African-American man who's gay, but who isn't fully acknowledging it yet. He's acknowledging it to himself, but he's not presenting that way. Uh, although he's, his personality feels like that. I mean, he, he's, he behaves like a, like a gay young man. Um, and um, then in the course of the play, he, um, um, he, he gets into a relationship with one of the other students, and all hell breaks loose. Well, and, and you are, you're saying um, the other teachers presumably are, are African-American, and most of the mm -hmm. students are African-American. You are a teacher there, and you are... I, I, I had taught there years before. You get the feeling the school has been there for quite a few years. Oh, and it's transformed. It's transformed. <laughs> maybe maybe it was predominantly white, and now it's predominantly... No, no, it, it, it was, it, it's always been an African-American school. That's been... <clears throat> that's been its um that's been the reason it was begun <clears throat> and so, i got there and i taught there very early on uh, is, is your character now, i'm a person who has marched back in the 60s with martin luther king okay i understand now, we're talking about your character mr pendleton or your actual self we're talking about oh, um the character i'm playing yeah yeah, so you are. I was. That's where I was going. Are you forward thinking in the context of civil rights and such? As a teacher there, it seems yes, you would be. That your character is. Um, yeah. So I belong to a different moment as an activist. I belong to a different moment in the civil rights movement than the present moment. And some of the frictions and conflicts that emerge come from that fact. And how is Chuck Cooper's character? He's the headmaster. Is he? He's of the old, older mentality regarding civil rights as well. On the same page as you. Well, he he does. He's um, he he doesn't ever state his his his. Theory. He just everything he talks about it are the to the to either to me or to the other to the students is about his his trying to honor the policies of the school. Oh, okay. So he's a bureaucrat, basically. Well, he's an he's an educator, yeah. And um, this this leads me to a bigger question. You know, this production, mm -hmm. this show, it's compelling. It's mm -hmm. getting great critical review, and uh, <coughs> audiences are enjoying it because of 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 the of the content of the verve, obviously, and the performances. Mm -hmm. Now, it is and we're talking about civil rights here. We're talking about uh, sexual orientation, personal struggles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you believe that? Art is art important in in the accomplishment of human understanding and justice? Oh yeah, art you get art can communicate things that nothing else can. <laughs> yes. Well, let's just confine it to the art of a play. A play um, puts events on stage, and the audience watches these events. And that opens a, a wider vision for the audience of the kind of things that go on among the kind of people who are in the play. Does that make any sense, what I just said? Makes total sense, yes. Yeah. And, and like when we're told a story, you know, when we're kids and we're told a story, 
that story opens up to us the kind of things that can happen with people. And that it, that's what a play does for an audience. An audience is basically like a bunch of kids that you're telling a story. They're open. And what? They're open. Yeah. 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 They, they want, no audience does not want to be pulled into the story. Now, so therefore, if you can't pull them into the story, it means you are doing something wrong. And so, and, and often the thing you're doing wrong can be easily adjusted. And so that's why they have preview performances and you find out, oh, that we're doing something wrong here. We're doing something wrong there. So we will change that either the way it's written or the way it's staged or the way it's acted or whatever. And, um, uh, <clears throat> Because any audience, I, I've never heard of an audience that sits down in front of a play in order to not like it. <laughs> right. I, mean, that's, I mean, that's just, you know, how could, what, what sense does that make, you know? And um, so um, then it's, it's just like when you read a kid a bedtime story. Yeah. And they say, well, wait, why did this? And then you realize you haven't read it clearly enough. Right. And you have to anticipate yeah. as a writer, as a director, as an actor, in a yeah. way, mm -hmm. how that's going to play out. With Yeah. And then, and then in pre see, with this show, we had almost a month of previews. And uh, sometimes the show will have even longer preview period than that. And in well, the old days, they used to go out of town and do, do tryouts out of time, but that's just got too expensive, so they don't hardly ever do that anymore. You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. Well, at least, speaking of the old days, I want to ask you a little bit. I mean, in a way, mm -hmm. it's the old. It's still contemporary. His stuff still works. It's timeless. But Tennessee Williams, what, what attracts you to Tennessee Williams so much? Oh, God, Tennessee Williams. I just get so into those people. And and the the miracle of Tennessee Williams is the people he gets you to identify with. <laughs> when you step back and look at it, you say, now, that character, is that person is so peculiar. Why do people all over the world get so emotionally caught up and devastated in a person like Blanche Dubois, who is totally peculiar <laughs> and, and has many qualities that are a little bit hard to take as well as some admirable qualities. And, but she, but she's a very particular eccentric kind of person. Why? But no one knows why, but he does that again and again in his plays. You just get, you just find this wildly, um, painful, an exhilarating connection with this person you're watching, <laughs> and you just don't quite know why. Yeah, that makes that makes sense to me. Yeah. And actually, Tennessee Williams once wrote in a tribute to Arthur Miller after the success when you know after Death of a Salesman had opened, and it was a big success. And this is just an article I read. People were saying, uh, "Well, why should I spend three hours?" with a person who I wouldn't want to spend two minutes with in real life, that being the main character in Death of a Salesman. And Tennessee wrote this article saying, that's what theater is for, to spend 
three hours immersed in a person that in real life you wouldn't pass the time of day with. Beautiful. And you and and that and I that's the best definition of theater I ever heard. I love it too. Thanks for sharing yeah. that. I uh, mean, Willie Loman, <laughs> you know, would bore the shit Austin out of him in real life, <laughs> and, and so and just sort of be off-putting. But the play makes you say, "No, look at this person. You're, See who he is. You sympathize See with what him." He's you certainly identify with him against your better judgment, but you say, oh, I can imagine feeling that way if I were that person. Oh, that's what, you know. And um, and Tennessee, uh, Tennessee's implication was it doesn't mean anything if you write a character that the audience would already love. I mean... That's it's easy. Always, yeah, it's very easy, and it doesn't mean anything. Well, you But the kind of people that Tennessee writes, and also he... Boy, did he know how to tell a story on stage. Yeah. You know, e even in some of the plays that aren't as well known. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Mm -hmm. I go back. He's a wonderful playwright. He's probably my favorite playwright in the history of the world. In the history of the world. Yeah. <laughs> that's a big that's, statement. That's, yeah, I've thought it through, and I've, I've settled on him. <laughs> yeah. Austin Pendleton, ladies and gentlemen, on Troubadours and Rock On Tours. What a treat to have you on. Uh, thank you so much. Um, I, wa I want to ask you, I mean, your work, I mean, you, you're you like a dynamo. You don't stop. You were talking about a little, a little while earlier how you'll be directing and acting in the production at the same time. That's the way it seems always to be for you. How do you do well, it? Well, that, that, that instance I gave you about the cherry orchard, I'm happy to say is unique in my experience. And, I mean, I, 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 mean, I, wanted, I always loved working, working at Leeds down with Nikos and everything, but... The challenge of that, I thought, oh, this is just too uncanny. This is never going to happen again. No, you had to do it. Where yeah. I walk from the rehearsal hall for one play that I'm directing, and then go and act in the in 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 another production of the same play, so that the performances of one and the rehearsals of the other are going on at the same time. No, that's that wild. I, I I need to see if I can pass this test. Yeah, that's a, that's a wild opportunity you had there. No, yeah, but but. But that that will never. That's just too big a coincidence. That will never happen again. But I mean, I still. The, the, mm -hmm. you're, when you look mm -hmm. at all the work that you're doing, you, you don't really slow down. It seems. You know, how do you do it? How do you do it? What what drives well, you? I, well, I well what drives me is I like it. I really like it. I really like. It. I like it. I do a lot of showcases too. Do you know what a showcase production is? I think I do. It's like a show that you do for almost no money that runs, well, now you're allowed no more than 21 performances of it, and it's way under the radar. Sometimes it gets reviewed in the papers, and sometimes it doesn't. And well, particularly as an actor, I, I do those because I want to I keep having to learn lines. I'm getting older, and I want to keep having to learn them because I think that, the tone goes out of that muscle <laughs> if you don't do it. And so, um, um, I'm, um, and, and then you just work on learning lines. You go over them and over them and over them. And, um, sometimes, sometimes it's right under the wire. Sometimes it, they're very hard to learn. Sometimes they're not. 
Are these pieces um, are these pieces that are, are established sometimes new experimental yeah, pieces? Yeah, well, like I mean, I did a I did a David Mamet play a few years ago. If you can learn him, you can learn absolutely anything. Really, you think and his I'm dialogue gonna, is pretty challenging? It's yeah, it's very intricate, and things like word order, not just the words, but the, it's so intricately woven. <laughs> and if you, when a day in a David Mamet play, you know inside yourself when you've even reversed two words. It oh, I just reversed two words. You say to yourself, and and uh, you're not supposed to, well, you're not supposed to do that in anybody's place. But with him, it really screws up the rhythm. And uh, and um, so and I'm going to do another one in Cleveland in the end of the summer. Um, just because it, well, I mean, it's a wonderful play, but but also because I mean, I can stay with my brother and his wife in Cleveland. That's part of it. But also, as soon as Choir Boy is over and I'm not performing it anymore, I wouldn't want to work on lines for another play while I'm still in Choir Boy. No. Because that could end up in disastrous <laughs> results. <laughs> and but but as soon as it's over, I'm going to start working on Glengarry Glen Ross. Oh, I love it! I love Glengarry. So Glen that Ross. I yeah, it's a marvelous play. The the, the one I did before Memets was Oleana, and yeah. <clears throat> it's the angriest play ever written. And the but the but the long long complicated speeches and the phone calls. If you can learn. It, a David Mendel phone call. <laughs> you can do anything. <laughs> I mean, it's just—it's so um, intricate. It's, uh, well, here's—I'll put it this way: it's as intricate as actual human speech is, which is which brilliant. Is way intricate. Yeah, exactly. To accomplish that without making it sound uh, produced is is brilliant. Mm -hmm. A certain when when you ever see a transcript of a conversation two people have been having and it's an accurate transcript. Yeah. It's, uh, it's so convoluted. An ordinary conversation. I, I, it's so intricate. It is. I used to do that. I used to interview people and then write the interviews down. I'd, so I'd tape them and then I would listen to the tape and meticulously reproduce every word and try to put the pauses correct and everything. And I yeah. really learned a lot from that. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, right oh, say. totally. Yeah, exactly. You, then you know what I mean. Yes. And he actually writes like that. Most writers, even playwrights who really capture human speech well, they write more, the patterns of the talk are more uh, distilled and simplified, like even a great writer of dialogue like Tennessee Williams. It is the way people talk. He has a, he has a genius sense of that. But it's without the, the jumble that actual speech is. It's more eloquent. It's more condensed. It's more, it's more direct. You know, mm -hmm. and and it's it's totally successful. That I mean, it's totally believable. But um, but with Mamet, it's, it's really funny. Austin. <laughs> Pardon my French. That's all right. But the the, the uh, in, in in and I say that as a compliment. Yeah, I, I took. I, I would. I would think so. Now I have to edit a little bit, but that's all right. It was worth it. What do I? What do I put in the? In, in the? See, doesn't that stink? I have to take the F word out. But you know, what are you going to do? FCC. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm talking to Austin Pendleton. And
Mr. Pendleton, we're just about out of time this go around. It always goes by so quickly. And I, you know, I, I greatly, greatly appreciate the time you've taken to be on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. Sure. I, I hope again we get to we get a chance to talk with you because you are fascinating. We're just we're just getting started. I have, I have like eight more questions to ask. I think we, we hit two. But what are you going to, you know, that, so be it next time. Next time. Any, okay. Well, yeah. Whenever you, whenever you feel like it, just let me know. Okay. Any, any closing thoughts for the throngs of listeners? <laughs> okay. Just pick one question of the eight you were going to ask me and, and I'll answer it quickly. Okay. Okay. Uh, do you have hope for the future of theater? Do, do I have hope for the future of theater? Yeah. People like to go see plays. Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> well, break a leg, sir, again and again, and uh, uh-huh. I look forward to talking with you another time. And you too, right back at you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye. Bye bye. It goes something like this. It goes exactly like this. <laughs> I got the Tennessee Williams. Southern decadence blue <laughs> I got the Tennessee Williams Southern decadence blues And to prove to you I got them Let me give you some clues I used to think my life was pretty grim Then I saw some shows by him <laughs> Now the whole world's future looks dim All of Edgar Allan Poe Is like a howdy-doody show <laughs> Compared to Sonny Jim I mean Tennessee since summer and smoke I've switched from coke Whoops! <laughs> Two five star Hennessy. Well, I think that there's a tinge of hope in William Inch, right? I mean, he's human, there ain't no doom in picnic or must stop, too. Dark at the top of the stairs, appeal to all us squares, which doesn't mean he can't be obscene, too. But that decadence, that southern decadence that belongs to old Tennessee, Tennessee, you can count on OTW to kind of shake you up and trouble you. He's found a new shade of blue. Thought I'd certainly admire a streetcar named Desire. Well, I saw it. And let me say to you, he kind of makes you feel that Norman Vincent Peale wrote Eugene O'Neill, <laughs> played by Howard Keel. When Patty Chayefsky writes, there ain't no hockey talks, no movie queen stuck in New Orleans, just the Bronx. <laughs> What do you feel like doing tonight? I don't know. What do you feel like doing tonight? Marty wasn't arty. It was true. But that decadence, that southern decadence,
and suddenly last summer when the natives couldn't date them they ate <laughs> I got the Tennessee Williams decadence southern poverty and Nashville diners club blues yeah I got the Tennessee Williams southern decadence The Yellow Dress Long ago, in a small cinderblock cinema attached to a mall, a pale copy of the grand movie palaces that once graced our depressed former coal town, I watched a red-headed man in tweed tell a joke. He was Woody Allen, and for better or worse, he changed my life. Many of us are fortunate enough to have life-changing aesthetic experiences. That book... That story, that song, that dance, that picture, that photo, that drawing, that movie. I remember finishing James Joyce's The Dead in the upstairs bedroom of our tiny house. It had a row of beds with the smallest at the end, like the set for a working-class Irish production of Goldilocks. I read the last lines, left the house, and started walking. I walked and walked, accompanied by Joyce's words at the end of the story, and ended up, appropriately enough, in a bar. I've reread that story of family, young love, middle-age regret, nostalgia, and death many times since, and I feel a phantom memory of that initial buzz every time. I was familiar with Woody Allen well before Annie Hall. I'd probably seen him when I was little on The Ed Sullivan Show, slightly older on Merv Griffin and Johnny Carson. All those once familiar names now dropped into oblivion and YouTube. I had seen Woody's movies, Take the Money and Run and Bananas and Sleeper, and I had read his books of humorous essays, Getting Even, and without feathers. But Annie Hall was a revelation. I didn't know then how much he owed to other filmmakers, or to his editor, Ralph Rosenblum, for the style and structure of his movie. It was all new to me. What I loved almost as much as the one-liners were all the references to writers and artists and musicians and filmmakers and philosophers I didn't know but would soon become familiar with because of Woody. Bergman and Fellini and Dostoevsky and Strindberg and Kierkegaard and Benchley and Perelman. Dixieland jazz and standards from the great American songbook. Not to mention the hyper-literate Jewish neuroticism that I would soon discover with Philip Roth. Joan Didion wrote a famous and scathing takedown of Woody's movies, in particular his self-absorption and his highbrow references. She criticized his life-worth-living list at the end of the movie Manhattan. Groucho Marx, Willie Mays, Louis Armstrong's recording of Potato Head Blues as the ultimate consumer report. 
but that list was exactly what I needed from Woody. A mental escape from my working-class background and my depressed former coal town into the sophisticated realms and the book-filled apartments of Manhattan, scored to the tunes of Porter, Berlin, Rogers, and Gershwin. Woody educated me, and after all the scandals, all the half-baked movies of his later years, all the reviewing and reconsideration of his work, I still feel indebted to him. He gave me culture with a capital C. Was it a shallow education? Yes. Does that matter? No. I would never have encountered Bergman in my friend's living rooms or in my parochial school classrooms. Sometime after I was firmly in the thrall of Woody, I met a girl. Let's call her Alma. She was in the back seat of a friend's friend's car and was wearing a man's red-striped shirt. She sometimes dressed like a hippie in our post-hippie era. Smocks and patched jeans and little fur-lined elf boots and a long white sweater coat she shivered in as we waited in line for matinee tickets on a winter afternoon in New York. She sometimes dressed like Annie Hall, or rather, like Diane Keaton, who played Annie Hall, as well as Woody's perfect foil in Play It Again Sam and Sleeper and Love and Death. The Annie Hall style, a quirky assemblage of men's clothes and thrift store finds, neckties and floppy hats and large button-down shirts, was all the rage, at least among some of the smarter set. She smoked. She read. Fitzgerald, of course, but also Zelda's Save Me the Waltz, Jane Bowles and Paul Bowles, The Glass Menagerie, and Franny and Zoe, and Ruby Fruit Jungle, and Sylvia Plath, who was famously and snidely dismissed by Woody and Annie Hall as an interesting poet- poetess whose tragic suicide was misinterpreted as romantic by the college girl mentality. That dismissal didn't hamper the budding romance between Woody's character, Alvy Singer, and Annie Hall. The romance fades after a while, as they do, and the movie ends with Annie's poignant version of Seems Like Old Times, playing over happy scenes from their time together. Alvy and Annie, Woody and Diane, me and Alma. One night she wore a yellow dress, a simple yellow dress with spaghetti straps, and she glowed. We forget so much, and I've forgotten so much. Decades of life, people, places, things. But I remember that yellow dress. Is it too much to say that the yellow dress is, for me, what the green light at the end of Daisy's dock was? for poor Gatsby. Is that over the top, too romantic, too Alan-esque? After all, it was just a dress, a simple yellow dress. i
Mammoth, Lemon Meringue Strudel, 
as a straight pin pricks the inner workings of Patriot Joe Sixpack's cowboy farm-fed noodle. Still in the wake and bake of dawn, she assured me nothing could go wrong, and then all of a sudden the Donald appeared, orange veneered, flaccid yet boorishly self-indulgent, absurdly ignoring the gong, desperately strong. Sky is smiling at me. Nothing but blue skies do I see. In the morning, there's new birds singing a song. Nothing but blue birds from now on. I never saw the sun shining so bright. Never saw things going so right. Noticing the day. Hurrying by when you're in love, my, how they fly. Blue days, all of them gone. Nothing but blue skies from now on. Believe it. And there you have it, episode 302 of Troubadours and Rockin' Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, actor, playwright, director, teacher, and sage, Austin Pendleton. I also would like to thank our associate producer and resident essayist, Dr. Michael Pavise, a.k.a. Uncle Cesare, and these musical artists, Stefan Grappelli, Django Reinhardt, The Cure, the Broadway cast of Choir Boy, Teddy King, Tom Waits, Al Jarreau, Branford Marsalis, and Terrence Blanchard, too. Until next week, let's give it a go and try to enjoy this one. Thanks so much for listening. Take care. <laughs>